You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maurice Siebert, and I, Niels Kastrolasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a little bit from our usual format, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Salem Abraham, a true trend-following legend, and of course, also a good friend of ours. So let me start by welcoming you to the show, Salem, as well as saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon thank, thank to you, Moritz. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Niels. Jerry and Moritz, it's fun to join you. Good morning. It is great to have you uh, with us today, and we certainly look very much forward to diving into uh, to sort of your world and, and, and all of the things you've learned uh, from many decades of being a quote-unquote diehard trend follower. But before we do so, uh, Salem, normally we just do a little bit of a review of the past week and maybe because it's month end, quarter end, half year end, 2019, maybe we'll just uh, comment a little bit uh, on that as well. So if you have a cup of coffee uh, ready, then uh, you have a chance to take an extra sip or two while we just go through the highlights. I uh, hope that's okay with you. Sure. Good stuff. Uh, now, um, U.S. stocks uh, had their strongest June, I'm told, since 1955, recorded their highest ever monthly close, leaving investors in the S&P 500 up 17% so far this year, marking the best first half in more than two decades. Uh, we saw continued fears uh, for the economy, and that put a rocket on the government bonds yet again, with treasuries up uh, about 5% or more uh, for the first half. Um, and um, the yield curve and all of that inverted, uh, and the pool of negative yielding debt around the world has swelled to a new uh, record. Um, so even though the bonds are screaming recession, it seems like the stocks don't really want to hear that. Uh, and of course, over here in Europe, we have had a uh, you know real heat hitting us in June. Um, but you know, trend followers continue to be on their own little hot streak as well, finishing uh, a decent first half of 2019, at least if we look at the indices. So with all of that in mind, Moritz, how did uh, June? How did Q2, how did, how did half June go? one yeah. how did half one go uh, from your trend following perspective? Yeah, two tales really, uh, the first half. Um, as you guys know, I was um, you know essentially after January going into a drawdown and it uh, took until June for that to be recovered. So I'm slightly ahead now, only a little bit, but you know, better than being down. Um, as far as June's concerned, June was good. Um, the past week, I must say, was a bit difficult for me. I lost about a percent and a half. Uh, most of those losses coming from the currencies, um, you know, bonds good, emissions good. I lost on the energies. I got longer in gold. Um, in fact, I must say, looking at the portfolio, I'm just looking at it right now, the way that's distributed between longs and shorts, um, I actually kind of like it. You know, when I was uh, looking at the same thing earlier this year, I had much more concentrated positions on the short side, becomes more distributed now, um, you know, getting longer the equities. I'm still short some of the markets, but, you know, like you said, Niels, with the June as strong as it was, it's difficult to keep short positions on. So uh, I like the way it's positioned and looking forward to July. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's kind of nice to see that uh, we've had a period of time now, six months, where we've had no crisis whatsoever. I mean, bonds are pretty strong, equities pretty strong, um, and trend following um, has been pretty good as well. Um, so, um, so it's 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 nice to see that this uh, this label crisis alpha doesn't really have to uh, to play in uh, for us to do well. And I think that's something we need to continue to to make as a case, so we don't get uh, too bogged down uh, every time people uh, you know shout that you know why didn't you deliver any performance because the S&P was down 5% last month. So anyways, from our point of view, um, yeah, June was good, pretty solid, uh, at a bit more than 4%, I think, at the end of uh, play, um, up a bit more than 16 for the year, so that's good as well. Uh, not a lot of change position-wise. Um, like you, Moritz, the last week was difficult. That gave back a little bit of the... Uh, you know, early gains for the month, but still, um, still okay. Um, added a little bit of exposure to stocks in the last couple of weeks. Um, fixed income, uh, certainly down from the highs in terms of exposure, but it's still where the performance is coming from, uh, certainly in the first half this year. Uh, other markets that's done well for us in the first half of the year, um, gold, a uh, couple of the grains did okay. Um, cotton did okay. Uh, one single equity market that did well was uh, the Australian uh, equities. And then in the currencies, really just the euro mainly. The rest was slightly negative. And the rest of the markets really, uh, in terms of uh, sectors, um, you know, meats uh, were difficult. Uh, energy was difficult. Uh, equities overall were a little bit difficult because of the U-turn uh, we saw um, back in December or late December, so it took us a little while to uh, get back on track. But like you, Moritz, we've maintained a couple of shorts in the equity still, predominantly in the Far East. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, all in all, a satisfying start to, uh, to the year. And um, yeah, we'll see how the second half uh, pans out. But of course, Jerry, we're always excited, not only... I should say now because you trade single stocks, but now you also trade Bitcoin. And that certainly had a, a couple of interesting days this week. Yes, I'm happy to be trading Bitcoin. It's a pretty small position, but uh, it uh, crazy move up and uh, it was amazing. I was laughing about how much, how crazy it was. And I had a $900 profit like the next day. And then it just started going up a thousand and two thousand and three thousand. Then it was crazy on the downside. Um, Thursday, tried to recover a little bit on Friday, and then I think it's down a little bit over the weekend as well. So I'm really preoccupied with the smallest position in my entire portfolio, which is not a good thing to, but in a good way. I think it's just kind of funny. And uh, <clears throat> I do think that there was a couple of lessons. One is, uh, you know, trade it small, let's say, but also this is a big um uh, uh, lesson for most people who kind of realize that, you know, being up 30%, 40%, 50%, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's probably safer to size these markets based upon their average true range uh, and something like that. So I know you've mentioned hogs before that has these gigantic percentage moves, but it was, you know, two, two and a half ATRs. And I think sort of similar with uh, Bitcoin, the ATR, it does keep getting larger and larger. I think when I first put it on, it was 500 or now I think it's up to 1500. So that's a little 
issue with looking at things in terms of ATR. The ATR can get really large uh, and not be very similar to your ATR when you entered the market. But uh, also holding on to something like this, that, you know, it's kind of a pain in the ass that it skyrockets in a vertical way and then it goes down even faster than it went up. And you just got to rely upon your anchor. You know, you have this entry price with some built-in profits, not as much as it was, but uh, don't try to get out of this trade uh, with this short-term profit. Um, you just got to hang in there and wait for your exit, really, uh, at this point. And, but um, you just kind of, I did have this tweet where I said something like, um, well, people were talking about Bitcoin and like, oh, this time it has value. And I was like, what are you talking about? Nobody doesn't have value this time. You know, how do you define this value? And I got to thinking it's, it's Bitcoin. You sort of have an advantage when you trade Bitcoin versus other markets. It would just be better for all of us if we, if we realize we didn't know anything about any of these markets the way we realize we have no clue about Bitcoin. Just follow the trend and follow your system. What do you think, Salem? Oh, no, I agree with that. I, I don't trade. I'm, I'm here grinning because um, Bitcoin, I have not traded it. But um, yeah, no, I don't think, you know, I don't think Bitcoin, you know, as a as a utility as utility. So I'm from the country where, you know, you look at things like an acre of land, a cow, um, you know, things like that or have value, have utility. And, you know, the any currency today is a fiat it's a fiat currency, which means it's backed only by, um, it's, it's backed by nothing. So given that the U.S. dollar's off of the, um, we've been off the gold standard since the early 70s, um, the U.S. dollar has no real value other than the perceived value that people give it. And the Bitcoin is the same way, sadly. So they're all, so I'm, I'm the type of guy that I'm like, I don't like really any currencies, including Bitcoin for myself, but you got to trade them and you want to trade them and you've got to use them. And so I think at the end of the day, you've got to use what people, you know, whatever they ascribe value to, and you've got to be trading it. And then why things go up and down, that's the human emotion about it. And um, so there's really no logic for any of the currencies that are fiat currencies in the world, which all of them are to have value. So, and really there's not reason for gold to have value other than people have always thought it was valuable. I heard a funny thing about gold, which made more sense that gold had value. It said, well, girls like shiny things and guys like girls throughout time. <laughs> Therefore, gold has value to men and women. And I thought, well, now that makes sense. It makes, <laughs> but, that makes, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so anyhow, so and I guess that's true of everything else. So um, it comes back to that. But um but yeah, no, to follow markets, even though they don't make sense, is is at the heart of what we do as uh, trend followers or quantitative traders, where you just follow the math. So yeah. I mean, negative interest rates don't make sense. No, uh, that's... And the world would be a much better place sometimes when, uh, if, for instance, people in Venezuela had a, the Bitcoin app on their phone, they would not have lost so much of their wealth that the government kind of took from them by destroying the currency. So I do think to some degree, if we just can all, it is kind of seems a little tenuous that we're all basically what you're saying is we agree this thing has value. We, we agree now it has value, but of course we maybe would disagree later, but it is kind of a strange world where 
something like Bitcoin, we barely understand that it's sort of based upon whatever agreements or uh, hope that uh, it sometimes it could be way more trustworthy than uh, a sovereign government's currency. Right. Well, when they're printing, you know, I think I don't think we can trust a sovereign country's currency any more than any more or less than Bitcoin. But um, because, yeah, there's people and maybe you maybe you trust Bitcoin more because there isn't a sovereign government doing what they're doing. And but I mean, the, the negative, I think you'd bring up a great point, negative interest rates. Um, I mean, that's I mean, never in recorded history, going back to writings on the on the sides of caves, have there been negative interest rates. I mean, it's I think we lose sight of how bizarre that is to have negative interest rates. But um, but it's a manipulated market by central governments. And the only, the only way it gets negative is when you have central banks. Yeah, central banks making it negative. So, you know, it's it's bizarre. And then to follow that market there is, um, I mean, if there's one for me that's hard to do, that's hard to do. So, yeah, to go long negative interest rates, betting they go more negative. I think there has been a negative commodity. Uh, I think I heard about that a long time ago where you you, uh, you had to pay someone to take it off your hands. Hmm. I wonder what that would have been. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, but you could see that at some point if it becomes kind of, I mean, like, let's say we go completely to renewables and then crude oil gets to be something that you say, no, we've got this crude oil sitting there. It's, it's just waste we've got to go get rid of somewhere. <laughs> Oh wow! It's gonna make you popular in Texas. Yeah, well, you know, you know, they haul off salt water. Salt water is a byproduct sometimes of a crude oil well, and you pay people to haul that off. So, and um, yeah, and then they go dispose of it in a salt water disposal well. So it would be like that, I guess. So, mm-hmm. well, that's the whole key to trend following, and kind of what we bring to the table a lot of times is we're the only ones dumb enough to stay long bonds or. Uh, stay long stocks when the whole world is like they're overvalued. Uh, this trend is not going to last. And even uh, here's some trend followers, badmouth stock trends because of the old crisis alpha formula and stuff that uh, we need to have a bad stock market so people will like us. But uh, it is one thing we do bring to the table, unlikely, unusual things. We just stick with it until the trend reverses. So. It's kind of funny that in a world that's become just from listening to your conversation here the last five minutes, I mean, you're bringing up points that, you know, really most people would think, well, that's an incredibly extreme world we live in. And to me, that makes it even more interesting um, and, and harder to understand why there is still such a big part of the investor community that don't like uh, what we do and needs to have, you know, a reason and, and an understanding for uh, for the things um, that they invest in and would rather believe someone who you know sits in front of them and say that they know what's going to happen uh, yet you know almost every day we see surprising things uh, happening but I want to I want to take a step back Salem because I know we jump straight into a conversation um, but I want to take a step back if I may and just to frame our conversation today, uh, I mean, of course, we all know you uh, well, and we know you've been around for a very long time and have a very distinguished career in, in the trend following space. But some of our listeners may not uh, be uh, as familiar with you as, as we are. So um, perhaps you can 
give us a bit of background. But unlike, you know, the usual standardized bio that everyone can look up on your website, maybe share some of the things that is not on your official bio that you think has really been important and impactful uh, in, in your career and, and maybe why you you ended up um, doing what you do now. Sure. Yeah, no, I um, so I, I grew up as in um, Canadian, Texas, little town um, in Texas, but a math, really a math kid. I, I'm good at one thing. I'm not, and that's math. And was interested in investing in business and my family um, is kind of full of different entrepreneurs. So business and math, that's what I was interested in. Then I was, so I went to Notre Dame to major in finance. And when I was about two thirds of the way through three, three fourths of the way through Notre Dame, I met a turtle trader named Jerry Parker in Canadian, Texas. So Jerry was there at a family get together. And, um, and so I got to meet, he was uh, recently married to a, a cousin of a cousin of mine. So, um, and so he and I, um, I got started visiting and he explained what he did to me. And to me, it sounded, um, really exciting. Just the idea of, um, really using a set of rules to trade a market. And that's what he explained. And I said, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And to me, what it was, was it was something that it fit my skill set, And as a math person, that I thought if this is real, then this is something that I feel like I could, you know, I might could do. And Jerry was kind enough just to, to say, well, and I think he was being nice to me because he had just met me and at a family get together. <laughs> he said, well, you know, if you ever want to come out to Richmond and, and, um, you know, I could tell you a little more where we had a little more time to visit. Well, so about three days later, I'm calling him and said, Hey, you know, when, when can I come to Richmond? And I, I should have known he was just being nice, but when you're when you're young and kind of dumb, you're like, well, I guess he I, I, I he really meant it, so I'm going to call him. But he did mean it because I I went out there to Richmond and spent a couple days, and we had a nice time. And um, I didn't get he didn't tell me everything. I mean, I think he was he was aware that there was a lot of information he had in his head he couldn't tell, but he told me enough to. Um, to really start me on my path. And I've, I've always been very appreciative of Jerry taking time and, um, and being willing to, to, to visit with a young person just out of, you know, we're not even out of college yet. And so, so Jerry is, he's at the top of my list of people I have, I, I appreciate him and I wouldn't be in the business without him. So it's fun to do this call or this, 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 this podcast, because I, um, because I appreciate Jerry so much and he, um, he's, and he's such a sharp person and a good person overall and a, and, and a nice guy to hang out with, but he was also very kind to me early on to get me started on this career. So, so yeah, no, so that's, that's the piece that probably people, they know, they, they talk about it some, but it's, it really is. I wouldn't be here, um, visiting with you all today without Jerry. So I appreciate Jerry and, I think it was Jerry's willingness to coach me. And then I think too, it, it helped my natural tendencies toward math and business because those two natural abilities that I had, particularly the math, 
and the interest in math and um, that's at the heart of being, I think, successful as a trend follower, to, to trust the math and not trust um, so many other things, the distractions around you that can get you off that. So, so yeah, so I think it was a good combination and I appreciate Jerry a lot. You know, it's funny because uh, if you remember this, Salem, but as soon as I started uh, Chesapeake, um, that uh, sort of all of a sudden, you know, this uh, program was made available, came into the market, a system writer, now called Trade Station. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of helped me get that thing going because I didn't have this, maybe the math or the programming skills, but it was kind of not too difficult to get it going. But uh, that was kind of our kind of thing that you really helped me with as well, getting to where I could do something along those lines as far as uh, backtesting. And uh, I think, the you know, probably the first thing we came up with was that uh, the old turtle systems in some respects were probably suboptimal to the degree they were too short term, even for back in the 80s. But uh, so oh, we, yeah, had, we, we had fun with, yeah, System Rider was a yeah. great starting out and then the other became trade station you could tell the old timers because they call it system writer because it was or trade station i guess it was yeah way back yeah yeah one of my first employees absconded with my copy of system writer i'd like to get that back it's probably uh worth having yeah no (laughs) one of the things that i've heard you um that we've talked about jerry uh, the last uh, few weeks um is this thing about um you choosing to become more long-term pretty quickly after you started chesapeake and just one thing that kind of uh, hit me the other day and i was wondering was this also a function of the fact that suddenly when you had more money to manage compared to maybe what rich had given you to manage for him that those time frames that you were using as as an in-house turtle so to speak uh were becoming more difficult as aum uh, grew or is that completely uh, unrelated uh well, I think changing the stop loss was just for backtest purposes. Um, I remember inquiring about the choice of the initial size of the stop loss, and the response was, "Oh, yeah, we, we kind of figured that was suboptimal. It was just uh, our our style." So we we're like, oh, "Okay, we're going to try not to have a style and just uh, let the research." guide us but uh as far as getting longer term you see that took um many more years the early 2000s i mean i would just as i said on the podcast many times i just like to peruse the charts i think it's kind of dangerous to peruse the charts and make changes and parameter choices but still i like to do it and i put up a long-term weekly chart and then put up channel around it or moving averages and i would just see uh wow we uh this trend lasted two years and we kept we got knocked out four times Mm. and so i'm like yeah maybe a longer term strategy would work and i would take that to uh myself or my research people and they say yeah yeah you're right Uh, making those parameters uh less likely to get bounced out so quickly it is a a better approach. Uh, so it was really just uh, experience. And then somehow we stumbled onto looking at it to where, in our opinion, the late 90s, uh, 
the older parameters, the shorter term parameters, they really did stop working. I don't know if that means a great deal because maybe they could always come back and and work again. Trend following could, could it get easier and the drawdown smaller. I don't know, kind of doubt it, but I guess that's one thing I'm not really sure of. I don't know what your thought is, Salem, but uh, do you see that uh, medium term stuff or maybe more specifically system parameters that haven't worked well in the past a uh, few years or longer, do you see that as something that oh, absolutely could come back to start working again? Or do you just try to make sure your your systems are have have worked pretty well over the recent five or ten years? Yeah, I, th I think it's I think that's a struggle we all have, and we try to figure out well where where's the right spot to be on the time curve because you see different trades, different times where the longer term things work, the shorter term things work. Um, you know, we've done. I think if anything, we might have split things. We've gone some that are kind of um, really, really long systems, but then we've done some that are shorter term systems that are even, um, you know, for a couple weeks. And we found that, um, that I think different, I think they can all work at different times. And I think there's some wisdom in saying, let me have some of all of this. And, um, you know, I'm going to have, hopefully there's going to be good scattered throughout it. And then you can overcome the bad trades. So, so sometimes I think it's fine to just spread out and have a little bit of all of it, if you can do that. But, um, if I had to pick, I would stay with just very long term though. If I had to pick one, the longer term, um, that, because there is a cost as we all know to, and it's, and it's more significant than you think, um, initially that, those transaction costs and the slippage costs, those are, um, and those can be avoided with just going really long term. And so I think just reducing the transaction cost, that alone would say, hey, let me go really long term and just sit in this trade a long time. Is this how you started out, Salem, when you, when you started your firm? Was it long term from the beginning or was it a mix of things? You know, it was more kind of probably a month holding period. So I was probably somewhere in the middle. Um, right. But then over time went longer, right. and then um, and then have in the last ten years added some of the shorter stuff back, and um, you know we have a and but we even do, um, we even do some mean reversion, some that I know is not as popular, but it hasn't done that well either. You know, it's what's interesting, I think about a lot of the things. Um, I, I, one study we did recently because so many things haven't worked well in the last 10 years. And I think that's a concern to all traders. Um, and you see it across really the CTA space um, that so many strategies have not worked well. So we did this study about six months ago now, six, eight months ago. And we said, okay, over, and I went back to 1988. So over the last 31 years, and we had 40 commodities in that 40, futures in it. They weren't all commodity futures there, commodity and financial futures. But it wasn't a lot of, um, it was it was a good broad selection because of things that go back to 1988. There's a lot of markets that don't go back that far. So everything went back to 88. Well, what we found was, um, was encouraging, I think, because you found periods when um, we, we said, okay, when did markets move and how many, what we call four, four 
the, the fourth quartile movements. If you said, said, okay, where is the line between a third and quartile movement over a 60 day period? So we looked at basically a three month period and we looked basically at the close to close and we measured that and we, and we measured that in the terms of like a true range. Like we say, okay, um, you know, how, how many true ranges have we moved in the last three months? Well, so then we look at that and we count the number of true ranges because we just step forward every day. So every, every year we'll have 250 lookbacks. So you're looking back at three months prior, the close three months prior, and you say, how far, how many true ranges did we move? Well, then we say, okay, how many in one year, how many top quartile moves did we have? So it's basically saying, did the markets move? Well, then how many, how many times did we have a significant move in the last year? And um, in the last 250 days, well, so, so the punchline of it all was when markets move, we make money. But if markets don't move, we don't make money. And so, I mean, I think the extreme logic would be, let's say crude oil stays at $58 a barrel and never moves off $58 a barrel, not a penny off for the year. There's no way to make money on that market, right? So then the inverse of that would be, well, okay, let's say a market moves a lot. Well, then we have to define a lot mathematically. So we tried to define a, a lot of movement. And what we found is when there's a lot of movement, there's opportunity to make money because those times corresponded to the years we made money. Um, the last 10 years, there's not been a lot of movement. And, um, and then you say, well, when there has been a lot of movement, what happened? Well, like you look at 1988, there was a dr this huge 50-year drought. Or you look at 1990 when Iraq invades Kuwait. You have, you have the energy markets double, yet a lot of other markets really move. You, you look at 2003 when there's a war. You look at 2008, you look at times when there's really, there's uh, supply disruptions like um, like what happened with grains. Um, you see wars, which can cause su supply disruptions, or you see financial calamity when you see people panicking in the markets. But basically you see market movement. And so there hasn't been a lot of market movement the last 10 years. So it, it drove home to me the point of why have things not worked well in the last 10 years? And you say, well, they just, on average, there's not been as much market movement the last 10 years as there has been the prior 20. And it goes back to, you know, you can put the best fishermen in the world with on a pond with no fish, and they're not going to catch any fish. And so that's the kind of thing that's happened in the last 10 years. A lot of us that have worked really hard to try to figure things out, you just, you hadn't been able to make money when there's no movement. And I think people say, well, trend following isn't working anymore, and these systems don't work. And I just think, you know, give it time. Um, things will happen. I, I say, look, crap happens. Just give it time. And when it happens, um, you just want to be there and ready. And in the meantime, you want to protect for, you know, protect your money and, and limit losses and be ready when the good times come. And unfortunately for us as traders and the good times, oftentimes are really bad times in the markets when people get emotional and markets move in an extreme way. So I think patience is what we all need. I couldn't disagree with the word you're saying there, but what's also interesting to me is that, you know, take a year like this year. Um, I mean, if I look at the market so far this year, I mean, we've had, you know, a 45% uh, move in, in Arba, Palladium is up 30%, crude oil is up 30% on the downside. You've had other things go down also quite significantly. But what surprised me 
was I looked at one of these databases of returns and I tried to home in on just people I consider as pure trend. And there was one firm, and this is at the end of May because obviously the June numbers are not out officially yet. At the end of May, one trend follower was down, I think, 19, and there were trend followers up 15% or so within the same five months. And that, that actually surprised me. Uh, to some extent, and and I think from just from you know having been involved in this for almost thirty years, I mean back in the day when you knew what Jerry's numbers were, you 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 knew what John Henry was doing, you knew what Don was doing, et cetera, et cetera. They were much more similar. I that's, that's how I remember it. I mean, I could be completely wrong here, but that's how I remember it. But now, um, I, I I seem to see much more return dispersion. I don't know. Is it just me noticing that, um, or, or or is there something more happening than and 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 is it too easy for us to say? I mean, I I agree with you that there the, the the price range compression has been evident and and it's there, um, but I also have to say that on our side at least we actually haven't performed worse in the last five or six years than we have done you know, in the last 35 years on average. I mean, we obviously have bad years from time to time. So so I, I, I find it difficult to pinpoint why people are saying that it is so much harder to do trend following today. Uh, and and we get, I think we give too much away to the press by always talking down our performance. I don't think it's that bad uh, as such. I mean, it's not... It's not firing on all cylinders, but neither is uh, value strategies and and so on and so forth. Um, And let's not forget equities had their own troubles for a 10-year period or so. Um, So anyways. No, I think you're right, Niels. I think think it, um, yeah, it hasn't been horrible the last 10. And and I, um, but I do think, you know, thinking back, it used to be easier to say, hey, we're all making money and we're all losing money together. I think people have, there's so many more markets now that I think Mm. there's things that people have branched off in and then there's other strategies people have mixed in that that you see the dispersion um, in the performance. I think, um, you know, like this year, um, looking back, like the the energy markets, they were in this big downtrend um, and then they turned around. And so you never know when, you know, you know so it depended on, it depended on your time frame if you were going to turn around and go, you know, get long soon enough. That happened in grains too, where mm-hmm. a lot of the grain markets were in a downtrend. And we, so we got whipped, uh, you know, we got whipsawed there where we had, you know, the energy markets, the grains, we were, we'd gotten short and then they took off and, now we're you know now we're long and that's been so it depends again on the time frame i think that you're looking at and your systems are focused on and you know the last thing too is the equities there's i think ctas have gotten more into equities i think you know jerry does the single stock futures we haven't done that we've kind of gone the the other extreme where we haven't gotten into equities we even limit our our exposure to stock indices. And so, you know, this year we're down on the year, down a little over 6% on the year. And, um, but I think a lot of the people that have made money have made money long equities. And, um, and so, 
so yeah so but we've 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 always tried to just say look people have equities we don't want to give them equities in what we're doing but um, more and more over time I think maybe that's a mistake I think maybe we should go ahead and have some equities in there but um, well I think that uh, maybe when you don't have these trends uh, massive trends that sort of magnifies the differences amongst the traders where and then uh, not having a lot of overwhelming trends that dominate your performance you know if we had a huge move uh, let's say like uh, 2014 where we're short energy and all the CTAs were kicking ass then all of these small differences your your the, how you weight your markets or what you don't include in your portfolio or your parameters are a little bit different than mine uh, those things are like beside the point because we just all are making money uh, short energy and uh, and long stocks or something like that so I think that maybe and I think people try different things and I think uh, back in the day maybe we're all really satisfied with more of a what we consider a traditional trend following approach now when we suffer everything's on the table short term long term try this parameter try this exit and uh, these things can maybe give off more of a a difference than uh, we'd see in better times. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Jerry, because it's, yeah, if you have a, if you have a market that just goes like a rocket straight up at some point, it doesn't matter if you're short, shorter term trend or longer term trend, well, you know, you, everybody ends up long together and everybody makes money together. So yeah, no, when you have, have markets that aren't on a one-way trip to the moon or one-way trip to the, to the dirt you don't you, you can't um you don't have that correlation in systems as much well it's all about the time frame like you say salem um you know i remember speaking about about last year's performance 2018 and i think we agreed that the shorter term systems were doing better right niels we were looking at some performance numbers from other sources and the shorter term systems were the best performing systems in 2018 probably on the back of the equity corrections being relatively quick, more abrupt. There's never been real a, you know, three, four month uh, trend that never established really on the downside. And so if you traded a longer term system, that would have been the right approach just for that time period, right? Who knows what next year will bring or what the second half of this year will bring. We don't know that. But all of this um, to me means we just have to trade all of those markets and diversify as much as we can, not just across the markets, but also across the timeframes the entries and the exits. And I think this is all we do. You know, we, we all do the same thing, maybe different timeframes, different ways of getting in and out of markets. But definitely, as far as I'm concerned, um, there's a mix of things in there. Um, overweight to the longer term side of things. But uh, I haven't completely given up on the uh, mid to short term systems. I think uh, people have differences of opinion. I think uh, over time, people uh, are more willing to not agree and do different things and uh, overweight and underweight. And uh, so I'm pretty happy. I made 30% in December 1990 in heating oil, and I made 30% for the year. So I am so far from that idea. I would like to not make, I mean, you listed all those markets, Neils, that were sort of had trends or whatever. Palladium was one of my favorites, of course, and emissions and uh, 
I've, I feel like I have a, an approach that it's almost impossible for me for a handful of markets to uh, move the needle very much if it's going to be these trends in a, in a you know, half a dozen markets. I need like lots of markets to, to move me because I'm so broadly diversified. And likewise, small sell-offs or large sell-offs in a handful of markets is not going to crush me. Mentioned a half an hour ago that I lost one and a half percent or something like that for the week, right? So even even a performance like that, as strong as the one that Bitcoin delivered in the past week, that hasn't been enough to really move the needle really for my portfolio because, you know, it's a properly sized thing is incredibly volatile. So the position size is small. But I always think about these things as, like you said, Salem, we don't know about any of those currencies and what their value is because really I don't think there is any value. It's the value that people give the thing that they trade, right? And it could be outlawed. There could be, you know, some law saying, you know, Bitcoin is no longer allowed and maybe the thing drops to zero. Maybe it goes to a million, maybe it goes to two million, right? But when I look at that from the outside as an observer, I always think, and I've been on the record here with my friends saying that I think it's a greater risk to not being exposed to Bitcoin than to be exposed to, uh, exposed to Bitcoin. I think it's one of those things where you have to put your your toe in the water, properly sized, and just go with it and see what happens. Yeah, more, more it's the, the, the things that are interesting you're, that you're saying that I think your listeners are need to really soak in too is how you, you know, people would think, well, Bitcoin, it's a crazy market. It's really volatile versus say something, you know, that's not as volatile. But what's interesting is, as traders, and I, I think the CTA community is better at understanding it because you trade so many different markets of different volatility that you have to learn, okay, let's size them right. And in the end, they are all the same once you size them right. So it's not a big deal. Here's a really volatile market. It isn't going to swing your performance any more than a really uh, you know, low volatile market. So I think that's you know, sizing positions right is always important where this exciting market like Bitcoin, you think, well, yeah, it's really exciting, but it's a really small position because it's so, because it is so exciting. We try to make it boring. We could try to get it, the volatility where it fits. So there's that. And then being broadly diversified, you know, this year we've added in the last really two and a half years, we've added about 20 markets and some were really, you know, some thinner markets that we're able to trade because we aren't, you know, a billion plus, um, firm and we can trade and have some meaningful exposure in some markets. And, and, you know, when you have these like iron ore, we was been our best market for the year. And, um, it was funny because iron ore has gone up maybe double, not quite double. And, um, none of us know iron ore. We just don't know the market. And so it was funny. We were, they were we were talking in the trade room a, a couple weeks ago. They were like, well, now why is iron ore even going up? And everyone's, I mean, we're making money in this market and we don't know why it's going up. But what we do know is that it's gotten at a level that it's not been before. And we know when that happens, people get emotional. And if they get emotional, they get somewhat predictable. And you see this, you're really trading off this human component that people are going to fight the price movement. There will be people that sell at what they perceive at a high price. And we're going to be the buyers. They're ready to take that off their hand because we know a high price can be an extremely high price. So, so I think the I think the idea of sizing positions right 
that you mentioned, Mortz, is interesting. And then just being broadly diversified. That's where this needs to be a self-help session for me to, to get me to make the leap into trading Bitcoin. So y'all need to, and I see the reasons, I know the reasons you're going to tell me and I'm going to say, yeah, I know I need to do that. I need to at least dip my toe in the water because I've been reluctant to do so. But it is, you know, it's a market that, you know, regardless of what I think about it, if I don't understand it or don't, but you know, it's, it's no different than iron ore in a yeah. way. We don't know. understand. We, we, we <laughs> exactly. need to admit that we don't understand anything and neither do the rest of y'all. It's uh you, know, exactly. you don't understand this. You may think you understand it. Oh, I had I had this idea in my head. Uh, I was listening to the news. I bought something. It went up. I understand that. No, you don't. It, you know, you don't understand it, and that's just fine. I mean, what's the craziest market uh, prior to Bitcoin recently? Probably corn. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you don't, you know, you got to uh, you got to size corn properly. I remember uh, had one client who didn't make money in. 2019, uh, 1994. Yeah, I made 15% in 1994. It was all coffee. And one of my clients called me up and said, I don't, why did I break even for 94 and all your other clients made 15%? I said, because you told me not to trade commodities. Well, we thought commodities were too volatile. I'm like, yeah, but you know, you got to size them properly based upon their vol. Oh, okay. You can start trading commodities now. So, um, <laughs> I think that same thing is going to happen with uh, all these markets in Bitcoin. You know, is it liquid? Yes. Is it uh, halfway decent as far as correlation with other markets? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. It's a trade. Put it on. Uh, I think it's a political thing, possibly. You know, if you tell your big institutional clients that you have a lot of Bitcoin on, that may not go over well. But as far as doing the right thing for yourself or your fund, I think it's, you know, the next... Uh, the next, the next Bitcoin that I don't understand or the next stock that I, uh, you know, beyond meat. Uh, as soon as I get 250 days, I'm going to start trading beyond meat. <laughs> oh, that's painful yeah. to a Texas boy out <laughs> on ranch land, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. But okay. Yeah, no, I don't understand it, but I need to trade it, right? That's right. So, Would you like it or not? That's it. That's it. Well, you know, you mentioned the corn trade. Corn is an interesting market now because of, you know, there's a lot in the USDA reports that are that there, there's a lot of really kind of bad information mixed in there, and um, you know that it's gotten to be where at the at the moment corn is is hard to understand because of insurance these prevent plant insurance things that happen, and it's hard to predict what a corn farmer is going to do when you start paying them maybe more money not to plant their corn than to plant their corn, and so yeah, so there's there's all these crazy things that come into markets that I think anyone who's looking at the fundamentals, they they can't say they understand it. And I think um, you read a lot of Twitter posts on corn lately, and there's a lot of smart people in the corn market that say, you know, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And um, usually don't, they don't admit it, though. They say, oh, no, I understand it, even though they don't. So, you know, uh, part of the, sh uh, the podcast is uh, me going over my <clears throat> tweets and uh, – you're probably not interested in Twitter too much, but uh, I had some a lot of good tweets this week. Um, one of them uh, was about you know understanding the markets and uh, you know do we really understand them and uh, do we really know what to expect? And uh, one of the tweets was uh, a very famous person saying, you know, hedge fund people are my favorite people. They uh, will change their mind. In an instant, if you present them with uh, 
contrary uh, information. They'll just suck it up. They're very interested. And if you're right, they'll get out of the short and they'll go long. And uh, I think that this is another thing that trend following does as well. You, we just cannot have this emotional attachment to my long corn or my short. I thought I was hedged this week with long corn and short beans, and they all reversed on uh, you know Friday. So, uh, but anytime you're in a situation, especially we have an edge because it's systematic, and we're not listening to advice or arguments as much as our uh, rules that uh, have been back tested and have uh, done us right in the past. But um, a great quality for us is just to uh, reverse that position as long as the system is uh, demanding it. Uh, and we're the most flexible possible. Nothing, uh, the trade is not my little friend. I don't, I'm not emotionally invested. Oh, you're, you know, what's funny, Jerry, about what you're saying is um, I think when, and, and we've talked, I know you hear it in trend following circles. Sometimes these trades that are painful to put on are sometimes the best, you know, when, you, but actually when you know nothing about a market, like for us, iron ore, we didn't know how dumb it was to be, you know, long at these levels and as it goes up and up. But, um, but sometimes we, you know, my crew on the trade desk, there's a lot of cattle people. And I remember the cattle trade back in 2003 when cattle prices, they got to a level um, it gotten to the low 70 cent level and all of us know the cattle market and, and we, and so we go long, but this is a level we haven't seen in three or four years. And so everybody in the trade room was like, kind of roll their eyes and look at that. And they're like, man, this is a dumb system. Why, what's it doing going long at these levels? Well, then after about six weeks, it got in the mid eighties. And so I'm in my office and uh, Shane from the trade room, one of the guys in the trade room comes back and he says, says, Hey, cattle are up limit today. And I said, Oh, that's great. And I said, so what's, where's that put it? Oh, it's, it's at 85, you know, something. And, um, and I said, well, that's great. And so I kind of looked back down. He said, no, 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 no. He said, you, you don't understand. He said, we've talked about this. This is nuts. You need to take some profits here. I said this, I know the system is a system, but we've all been talking. I said, so wait, so you got sent back? Like you're the guy that got sent back to tell me this. Yeah, no, I'm the guy that got, we've all talked about it. I said, so I go in, so I go in the trade room and I said, okay, tell me about, tell me why this is crazy. And they said, Salem, this was crazy when we bought this at 72. We hadn't seen these in three to five years. And now it's rallied up to 85. We got at least half the price, take some, something off the table. And so I told them, I said, you know what? I said, that's why trend following works. I said, and so, so we went through this. I said, well, of all the ranchers in the area, how many do you think have sold their cattle? They've contracted their saddle, pre-sold their cattle. And we all guessed, and we were basically all guessing eight or nine out of 10. And I said, okay, now let's call the steakhouse downstairs. So we have this big steakhouse on the first floor of our office and um, people come from 100 miles around to eat the steak. So I call, we call, and the manager answers, Brad does. And I said, I said, hey, Brad, it's the guys upstairs at Salem and us. And I said, we're wondering how much, because before, I, before we called him, I said, I bet they're light on inventory, and let's find out. But my bet was light. So Brad said, said yeah, I said, what's up? And I said, well, we're, we're wondering about the cattle market and wondering about um, steak prices and all, and, and, and the, he, he didn't even let me finish the sentence. He said, have you seen these prices? These prices are nuts. 
the the meat market and i said well so what's your inventory then brad do you have a lot of inventory or average or less than average he said oh we've got the least we can we we can carry just to get us through and i said okay that's what i'm wondering thanks and so we hang up the phone so i said okay so the steakhouse they've got the least they can handle so they have to buy steaks next week they don't have a choice to keep open and you've got eight or nine out of ten of the cattle guys have sold I said, that's what makes a trend following, a, a big trend move possible because this market could explode because you've run out of cattle. You've, everybody's sold. And the people that are buying, they the, the psychology works on both sides of the coin to make it possible for an extreme move to happen. And so, anyway, so cattle ended up, I told them, I said, I love the trade now. I said, I love it more than I did before. Now I understand it better. <laughs> but, uh, but when we don't understand a market, we don't question those trades. It's funny how we question a trade that we think we know something in. But, um, but the clue of be, feeling really stupid, that should be a positive. I mean, that's, a, that's something that tells you you're on the right side of the trade. And if you don't have a lot of company, if everybody's telling you you're stupid, um, that's a good sign too. So, I, th I think what you explained, Salem, is something that I think we've we've all come across, right? And uh, and you've been doing this for for a very long time. And so I'm I'm just curious. I mean, how do you bridge that gap, really? Because what you describe here in terms of even your own internal uh, traders saying, you know, we should get out. This is, you know, let's not follow the rules 100% and, and all of that. They're just expressing, I think, what 99.9% .9 of investors are feeling and how they probably act when it comes to investing. So what what have you found works in trying to explain and 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 convince people that what you do and following rules and and not you know getting emotional uh, about these things um that that is something that is worth having in 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 a broader portfolio you know i, I Niels, i think the only way is just to, the the best way is to show them some good performance over time and that it's been successful over time um, because it's not something that people really gravitate to. For me, it's easier because I, I, I think for people that really trust math, and they see math, and they see a, they, you know, statistics, and you know that um, make sense. It's easy to, to trust it, but, um, but it's difficult when you can't explain it. Um, can you visualize math, so to speak? I mean, since you you understand it, you trust it. How can we um, how can we help investors who may not um, understand nitty gritty math like you do? But I mean, is it possible to visualize in some way that we haven't maybe done well as an industry? But I mean, um, because it seems like it's the same issues, it's the same discussions that we had twenty five years ago that we're having today. It's the same conversations. Um, and, um, and now I, I would, I would even argue that maybe it's becoming even, um, even a little bit harder to some extent because of two things that I've come across at least one, it's this label that we, we be become, um, you know, crisis alpha, because I don't really think that it's, uh, that fitting, uh, as such. Um, and it's certainly not helpful. I mean, it's. Sure, we 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 make money from time to time when there is a crisis, but we don't have to have a crisis to make money. So that's one thing I I think makes it harder. Um, sometimes we have a know, crisis, we don't make money uh, because the yeah, crisis now absolutely. is defined as a few weeks or a few months. 
or a few hours or a couple of days or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing. But the other thing I've seen recently, I actually saw it this week and I wrote a long, my longest tweet ever, which was one of those things that I learned from Jerry, where you can add multiple tweets to the same thread, which is fantastic. <laughs> oh no, Jerry's a bad influence on you, Neil. <laughs> he, he's a great, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, yeah. thanks yeah. for that, Neil. So he, that's fine. That's fine. So no, so. But well, but these, these, but what I saw this week was a couple of analysis, and and also from a, a podcast that I'm listening to, and I have the greatest respect for the people who are doing this, but they all say conclude from their deep analysis, oh, but trend following doesn't work on equities, right? And 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 so they make all these studies, and they it comes out as yeah, I mean equities compared to long only or whatever, it didn't really work. But my point is. And this is what I was trying to express in all these tweets. Um, trend following to me was never intended to just work on equities. I mean, it may or may, it may not do, but part of the, I mean, equity markets as futures were not even invented when the pioneers of trend following started trading in the 70s, right? right. So, 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 so the part of the secret to why it works is the diversification that is built in, into these portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, the discussion that, or the, the point that Jerry just made about someone in 1994 didn't want to trade commodities, I came across that this year, where one of my clients basically said, well, you know, we have some conversations uh, with, with our underlying investors and they prefer a trend follower who doesn't trade commodities. And I'm thinking, and, and, and they actually said, because commodities are more risky, right? And I'm thinking, no, I mean, well, how did you get to that conclusion? And it's not to pick on them because I know there's a lot of pressure from underlying investors. I actually think the the the, the clients we were dealing with are great guys, but it just shows you that some of these same issues that we've seen 20 years ago and, and, and so on and so forth, they still pop up. So we need to become better. Frankly, it's a challenge to us. We need to become better at explaining why it works not you know not maybe using too fancy terms and math and 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 all sorts of skews and no skews and you know whatever we just need to be able to explain why it works and why people should be comfortable with it and why it should be part of 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 a broader diversified portfolio even though sometimes Jerry and I gets into discussion about whether it should be all trend, but let's just keep it uh, civil today when you're here, Salem, and and then we'll say that it should be just be part of a portfolio. I'm I'm sure Jerry will agree with that. Yeah, no, just you, today, you know one story that's a funny one that um, helps describe some of what we're talking about because what we're really modeling is human behavior, and I think we're all wired as humans um, in a similar way. You know, if you think about our ancestors, you know, the ancestors that are, that were the brave ones that went to take on the tiger, they might've gotten eaten and didn't have offspring, but our, our ancestors were maybe the safe ones that stayed in the cave or something. And, and, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of things that are wired into, um, into humans that is a common, is common across all of us. And, um, and I think that's what we're modeling is human behavior um, but we're we're seeing it show up in as you measure it with math, and so one of the things, a funny story, because I, I think of sometimes a market is like you know a hundred people in a boat, and I think of the boat, you know, if they all go to one side or the other, and, and so I've always had that in my mind for the for really for at least twenty years, 
And, um, and so it was funny that I heard on the radio about 10 years ago, they were talking about a bunch of tourists down at Lake Austin. And so they were going around the lake and showing them the sights. And so they go by and they say, now on the right up here is Hippie Hollow. And Hippie Hollow is a nudist beach, a nude beach. And so now, now if you're on a tourist boat and the nude beach is on the right, which side of the of the boat do you figure most people are going to go and it's just human nature everybody's like okay let's so everyone is on the right side of the boat well then what's was so funny about it is as a is um is there were so many people on the right side of the boat that the right side of the that the boat capsizes so the gawkers looking at the nude people on the beach they're now in the water and who is it that's going to rescue them but it's the nude people on the beach that swim out to help them get ashore and unfortunately, people on a nude beach are not like we would imagine in our in our in in and say, well, they're all supermodels. They're generally unattractive, you know, uh, you know, naked people. So so now you've been coming along, and you're gawking at the unattractive naked people. But now they're the people dragging you ashore, and so it ends badly. So so you've always got to be careful you know, with your human behavior, because your human behavior may lead you all to being, you know, being rescued by unattractive naked people. And that's not what we want to, we want to happen. So, so as trend followers, <laughs> we're playing off human nature and they, they're predictable. So, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're playing off human nature and uh, because it's, there, where the systems replicate things that are hard for humans to do, buy the high, sell the low, take small losses, diversify, live through lumpy performance, and then that's why we make money. So we shouldn't be surprised that uh, they don't like that. They don't like it when we do it. They don't like it when they do it. They can't do it. And so I think to some degree, I've never been a fan of another thing we kind of don't really agree on that much is that I've never been a fan of this education thing. You know, if, uh, if Rich would have come to us after, you know, six months of trading and I would have belly ached about not making money and I wasn't following the rules, you know, uh, he wouldn't have said, Oh, I just need to educate you better. You know, no, you know, the right thing to do. People know the right thing to do. They know about diversification. They've read about it, uh, but they're human beings and they're going to have a hard time doing it. Um, I look at my portfolio and I just wonder, like, how many times do clients of CTAs see the entire portfolio? When I look at my portfolio and I see corn and wheat and Swiss franc and uh, commod other commodities and stocks and IBM and Microsoft, I just get a big smile on my face. It just makes me feel so warm. Now, I'm not, maybe that's just me and, and I've been doing it for so long, but I just, I really need the security of that diversification and I've got longs and shorts. Then um, how often do clients uh, see that? How often have they seen a chart or lived through a situation where some of these crazy markets have made a lot of money, you know, short energy 2014 and seeing that chart and seeing uh, sort of how it went down and, and uh, how it wasn't unusual to make money in that. And I just don't know if people are fully uh, living with it on a daily basis just by simply seeing the charts and seeing the portfolio like we are. Uh, but once again, I think it's a premise of life. You know, it's it's the road less traveled. It is uh, a narrow road. And uh, I think to some degree, we'd be better off if we 
approach people by saying, look, here are the, here's what we do. You probably can't do it. You're probably not tough enough. You're definitely smart enough, but it's probably not for you because this is just too hard mentally uh, and challenge people. Uh, but I think uh, finding the right words that tickles their ears that, oh, when you put it like that, that's just never going to happen. When I was 26 years old working for the accounting firm, I stumbled onto some book or some article about trend following and I fell in love and the love has just gotten deeper uh, all since then. And I had no one telling me uh, exactly how to do it. I thought to myself, wow, the key here is the big win's going to pay for the small losses. And then I sat there with my calculator and I put into my calculator compounding 100% a year. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be a really fun thing. I, I love this. <laughs> no, well, that's the math. You, you're, that's where the math gets you comfortable. And as an accountant, you knew, no, this all, this will all work out. Well, you know, I've the diversification, what you talk about there and chasing performance, which we've all seen, um, you know, if you're properly diversified, you're going to have things that do poorly um, in a given year and things that do well. You know, if everything does well in the same year, you weren't properly diversified, probably. And so, um, and there's always going to be something, the worst performer in your portfolio. But what you find is a lot of people are, they throw out that worst performer. They say, well, this hasn't done well. And so we don't, you know, the last 10 years in this, so we need to go to something else. And I see it on investment committees. And and there's a lot of smart people that, you, you know, it's not like these amateur investors are really smart people that they say, look, no, we you know, and they come up with a reason that it isn't really chasing performance. They have a they have a very colorful way to describe it. That's you know, or, and reasons that sound real logical. And but it's in the end of the day, you're chasing performance. And so what I, what I tell people, I said, look, you know, if you haven't ever had a flat tire in ten years, you don't take the spare tire out out of your car and say, hey, we there's no need for this anymore. Um, you know, there, you, you leave it in there because there's need for things in your portfolio that sometimes aren't going to do well, but they're there for a reason. And they're, and so people need to remember why they were there in the first place. I mean, I think you bring up a good point, Jerry, as well. And, and you know, in terms of, you know, how much do we tell people? I mean, probably the less they know about what we do probably would be better for them. On the other hand, we, we all want to be transparent and transparency has become a really uh, part of, of, of uh, not just our industry, but the whole financial uh, industry and so when we do provide this transparency and and unlike you who see all of these markets and you smile I mean uh, my experiences are often that what what people see is just oh but you're long equities I'm already long equity so ah, don't really like that they, you know so so it's really hard to find that balance uh, and of course a lot of people who who um, you know write about uh, I think there was a study out or, or there's some kind of yeah some kind of analysis or a study out where Fidelity had looked at the best performing clients they had, the best performing portfolios they had. And it turned out that the best performing portfolios were the um, accounts that people had forgotten they had, where they basically had made no changes to them <laughs> for like 25 years. And and they were the best performing portfolios or, or accounts. Um, so it goes to tell you, I mean, how hard it is for people um 
just to leave things in order and just to trust the system, trust the process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, um, and that that and obviously comes back to human behavior. A lot of the things that has made us, a lot of the things that we do uh, in terms of humans, like being you know super confident, can get you a long way in life. But it can get you in a hell of a lot of trouble when it comes to investing. So there's a lot of these things that are completely counterintuitive to how life plays out to when it comes to uh, investing. And I think that's part of the challenge. I agree. I do think, though, that uh, a little bit of education might be needed as it relates to uh, trend-following stocks and trend and not trend-following stocks. So I think uh, that could be quite a bit of difference. Uh, I think that... Uh, if it's okay if you want a lot of stocks or mostly stocks, but wrapping trend following around it could uh, usually create a much different performance, sometimes better, sometimes worse than buy and hold. I mean, unfortunately, the best example has been recent, recently where you know the stocks kind of crash and we all liquidate, go short, and then they turn around. We have to get out of the shorts and get, get back to being long where – this person who doesn't check their statement, that's why they've done so well. Uh, they have, um, <clears throat> you know, they didn't do anything and the index holders, they didn't, passive indexers, they didn't do anything. So uh, pairing, I would say that uh, if you did, if you just looked at the numbers and stuff, and I guess, you know, it depends upon how, how many decades you go back. If you go back long enough and look at uh, all the data, lots of data, probably uh, diversified trend following deserves about 80% of the portfolio, but a 20% long S&P position probably helps out a little, you know, helps out quite a bit um, because that is the antidote to whipsaws, never getting out. I think we should go back to uh, having only quarterly or annual NAFs and then only show statements to clients once a year and then we're, we're getting an even higher performance view for that. Just kidding. But one, one thing that I wanted to ask you, Salem, with you know, us mentioning that we're playing off the human factor here, which I agree with is, what do you think about, you know, the fact that there's less humans participating in the markets and it's more computers and it's more systems, you know, not only trend following systems, but all sorts of, you know, trading systems, be that many reversions that are, you name it, high frequency. At one point way back in, let me say 98, 99, we, um, we did, I did high frequency trading in my shop for about six years. It was from only my own account. It was back in the nineties when everyone got really frustrated with the managed future space and a lot of them left. And so they, um, and so we really, we kind of had to find something to do. And it was when the CME was going electronic and opening up Globex. And so, so we did some, for about six years, we did, what we called electronic trading, now they call it high frequency trading. But what, what so much of the high frequency trading, everything, everything we did was arbitrage. And so we were taking liquidity from say the ETFs, um, the stock index futures in the ETFs to the, well, from stock index futures over to the ETF market, the spies and the, and all that. And so I think a lot of the, the electronic trading and I don't know how much, I, it would be interesting to know that the biggest part of it, I think, has to do with arbitrage. You know, when you're trading, um, you know, ETFs that are a basket of stocks, you could, you know, you can do the basket of stocks versus ETFs. You know, a lot of ETFs are based on things even 
you know, the price of crude oil or the price of different commodities. So there would be ARBs there. So I don't know, you know, so to the extent that there's arbitrage, all that is is making the markets more efficient and um, and tighter bid offer spreads, really. So I think a lot of the electronic trading, I really think it's very positive for the markets because it does because of the speed you could tighten you can tighten up markets, and because of um, transferring liquidity from one liquidity pool to another, I think that's good too. So I. Um, I agree with that. I mean, this is this is making the markets and reducing spreads, and they're make, you know they're looking to make the spread, and and probably that's good for us. I think I was more about you know there's all these smart beta people, the risk factors, the risk premia, more of that stuff being being launched and attracting assets, more people going passive, you know, ETFs are on the rise, all of that, and you know we were you know thinking on that podcast and discussing to the extent that we could, you know, what the impact could be there and whether that may have an impact on trends and the way that we, our systems work. And, and what's your view on this? Do you, do you think that's too much or is it all, it doesn't matter? I don't know. I, it's got to matter. Anybody buying and selling in the market has to matter. So, um, but I don't know how much it, um, I don't know how much. I, I think it's a great question that I don't really think any of us have a good answer to it. But I, I, I just know from my experience with electronic trading, with so much of it being arbitrage related, I felt like that was a positive. I think having um, markets being electronic and, and really not having floor traders as much as I know we have all had friends that are floor traders. and we. Um, but I think the electronic markets are, are more efficient I think there's um, lower costs. So, but the, you know, the one system trader, you know, I, you know, I mean, it, you know, we're certainly system traders. Um, I don't think we've seen more, we have not seen more slippage, I know. Um, so we don't see, we don't see the trend following space more crowded. We don't see, if anything, we see it easier to get trades off. Um, and so we don't see an inner really interrupting what we're doing. And I think at the end of the day, it's kind of small noise in a bigger, if you had a, you know, if you have a, let's say a financial calamity like in 08, or if you have a, a war like in 03, or a drought like in 88, I think you're gonna, I think um, the big moves will still be there to capture and I think when they come along, there'll be opportunities. And I think the noise in the middle and how people trade, I don't know that that will matter as much. Um, you know, because so much of it is kind of market making and you could see market making programs and things like that. And so there's a lot of ways to extract money out of the markets or make money or participate in the markets. But I think in the end of the day, um, the big moves that we're trying to capture are still going to be there. But I could be wrong. So... I don't know the answer for sure, but I, I don't, but I think I do come from a place where having done high frequency trading for seven years, at least I've seen it. And I, it doesn't scare me that people are out there doing what we've, what we did for a long time. So, and we quit doing it because everyone, it got so efficient, right. so, which is a good thing. I mean, right. I, don't, I don't have the answer. It's, you know, one of those things that, you know, you think about, but kind of like impossible to find an answer even and you know get get to the answer of that but 
you know, I was always, you know, bringing it up because we've heard, you know, larger firms, Winton, you know, reducing exposure to trend following because they think it's, you know, crowded or it's too much. Um, and, um, and kind of like, you know, us guys, we, we hang in there um, against all those headwinds, you know, just carry on. Like you say, waiting for the next big move. At some point, some big move will come. We don't know what market that's going to be, but, you know, and we don't, we don't know when it's going to be, but I don't want to throw in the towel. But, you know, every time you read about those things that, you know, certain types of behavior in the market may have an impact on the way that we trade. Obviously, you know, we, we want to understand it as much as we can, even though in that case, it's impossible to really get to the bottom of the, of the thing here. No, but Moritz, I think it's, I, I think you're spot on with, you know, when you see smart firms like Winton and we all know David Harding and he's been successful and, and is a smart guy. And, and I, I, I remember Stanley Druckenmiller, there was an interview not long um, it was right around that time that Stanley was saying he felt like it was harder in the markets. But again, that's where the study, that's, that was kind of the, the, the reason we did this study looking back and saying, okay, well, um, why have, has it been more difficult the last 10 years versus the prior 20 for my trading career? And has it been, you know, is there a reason that we need to maybe say, hey, we need to stop doing this. This isn't working and and it won't work in the future. And and I just, I, as much respect as I have for those people, I think they're wrong with it because I think why we haven't had the opportunities is we haven't had the market movement. And, and when the market movement comes, we'll have those opportunities. And so, um, but it isn't, it isn't electronic trading messing it up. Um, and again, I, I mean, those people haven't done electronic trading. Um, I, I have, um, but I haven't done every type of electronic trading, but we made a lot of money trading electronically for the years we did it. And then what we saw, the space got crowded and the money got thinner and it's an expensive operation to run, um, you know, because you have so much computing power and, you know, lines connecting you different places. And there's a lot of cost with that, but at the end of the day, that makes the market more efficient. And so I, I'm not at all afraid of the electronic traders out there. I think if anything, they help us, they provide liquidity. Um, they aren't, they don't, I don't feel like I'm getting gamed. We don't see the evidence of getting gamed. I think if, you know, um, you know, if you're getting gamed at some point, you will recognize it. I think in the markets we would by we track slippage, on all of our trades, um, we have for goodness twenty years at least. And how about, we the, don't... How about the number of whipsaws, Salem? Do you see that increasing to the, the percentage well, of winning trades being lower? Well, I think you do, just because I think the trends that start off don't continue. You don't have the big moves. But I don't think it's be. people. Do you think it's people doing it to us? Barry? I don't know. Jared? I mean, I just think that uh, that's just not discussed enough. I think. Uh, it's almost a silent killer. You wouldn't even know uh, mm -hmm. they're inside. And I think what needs to be discussed along with uh, we need more trends. We'll get these trends. Trends always are there, which all of that is very makes makes sense. I get that. But a little deeper, okay, they're, we don't even realize they're nicking us a little bit on the entries. Uh, they're, they're getting us long where they ran wheat up there on Friday <laughs> and then uh, 
then it's down uh, Thursday, then it's down 20 cents on Friday. So I'm just saying things like that, uh, that, that get us a little bit on the exit. You know, we're not making quite as much as we used to. And then we're sitting here going, well, it's all about these big trends. And we still see big trends. Oh, they're much smarter than that. And it would be almost imperceptible to some degree. Uh, when, when you first got into this, I was thinking like, uh, it reminded me of this quote I had on my Twitter page, which was, uh, hedge funds should be like small restaurants, loyal group of clients, unknown. Um, and I think maybe this uh, systematic trend or systematic trading in general, uh, or some, some styles of trading that really need, you don't have a lot of people interested in them and they're ease in clients are looking forward to uh, redeeming quickly uh, because their heart is really not in it. I think maybe uh, if the industry is made up with, it needs to be made up with a lot of small firms who are just totally dedicated to um, staying with it. And maybe um, then maybe we become, uh, if we had uh, hundreds and hundreds of $250 million firms or $500 million AUM firms, then maybe these people would leave us alone and maybe uh, that would help us a little bit that it's not worth their trouble. But it's hard to imagine with billions and billions of dollars of trend-following money being spread around that um, based on breakouts uh, that, oh, we're being ignored by the smartest people on the planet who trade short-term. I don't know. That doesn't sound like a – if we are being ignored, great, but we probably should think about it and worry about it more. Yeah, you, don't, you, you don't want to be the guy being gamed. That's for sure. What's that what's – that, uh, blackjack no that uh poker statement yeah if you don't if you don't know who the patsy is at the table you're probably the patsy or something yeah like that. no that's it we don't want to be that person but I, th I think i think your conversation brings up a couple of really interesting points uh one is i mean you say jerry that maybe it would be better we had 100 250 million dollar firms i mean maybe we just have to also accept that perhaps trend following doesn't work so well when you manage 10 billion or 20 billion. And, and, and that's why some of these bigger firms decide to, to scale it down. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I've often made that argument because you lose a lot of the diversification. You can't trade the smaller markets, so you lose that automatically. And I think still part of the success of trend following has to go hand in hand with the uh, importance of diversification. So that's uh, that's one point. The other thing is you, you talked about why maybe this doesn't uh you know why why we shouldn't be so afraid that things are being uh maybe um i'm losing my my uh, train of thought here a little bit but the point i'm trying to make is that the reason why trend following will probably never be overcrowded is because it's hard to do it's not because we have some the source we all use is not that different and it's not that special what makes it special is the fact that we do it and we we implement it and we sit through the drawdowns, which most people don't want to. So yeah, I don't but think you, that but you understand yeah. the other point I'm making, which is the computers know uh, that if we could just get it up to the 200 day high, we'll see some buying. Mm. And then once we get them long, if we can just get it four or five ATRs below there, then we can get them liquidating. You understand this gaming, and this, so this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I agree with that because that's actually one thing that Stanley Druckmiller did bring up in one of his interviews. He did say that he felt 
that there were algos today out there trying to revert markets to the mean. As soon as the trends were getting established, he felt that there was something pulling them back that he had noticed. Uh, and I think that's probably true, that that there probably are some people out there who have developed algos to, to do exactly that. That's their strategy, and that's perfectly fine. I think we also know that if they at some point become unsuccessful in that, meaning if the trends are so strong that all of these mean reverting strategies um, basically have to capitulate at some point, that's going to reinforce the the, 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 the the trends eventually. But I agree, it could be why it's been a bit more difficult uh, in the last few years uh, that there are more and more people betting against uh, some of these uh, trades that we do. And, and, that's, and that's all I'm saying is that it makes me nervous not even saying that I agree or disagree. I don't know. What I'm saying is talk about it. If you're going to bring up big trends, human nature will always have trends. Look at that trend, blah, blah, blah. Also just say that's not the entire argument. It's another argument. We make a little bit less on the entry. We have a few more whipsaws. We make, a, uh, we make materially less when the market sells off, we have to liquidate. We've had some violent, violent uh, crashes, blah, blah, blah. And then when you total it up, you're like, how in the world did we get more trends in 2020, let's say? We got some of the most amazing trends ever in 2020, but you know, we didn't make nearly what we would have made with two-thirds of those trends historically. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. It's very complicated. It's not we, there's trends. There will always be trends. That is not you're not even getting close to the truth. Not you personally. I'm just saying. I read that sure, a lot. Sure. <laughs> I read yeah. that a lot. Oh, there's trends that will always be trends. So trend following will always work. Oops. No, not necessarily. Jerry, don't you and Nielsen and Moritz, don't y'all think that it, back when the floor traders were on the floor, we got played by the floor traders some though. <laughs> You know, exactly. I mean, this is something that I, has been in my brain since uh, December 1983. Um, you know, what's funny is, little known fact, I don't even, I have never read the Turtle books. Apologies to uh, all the authors out there. I'm just afraid to read the books. I don't, I'm afraid of what's in those books. I don't want to read them. So, um, but I don't know if this is in the books, but you know, let's say that uh, the system one in 1983 was, uh, two weeks higher, one week lower. Well, uh, so you bought the 20 day high and you liquidated at the 10 day low, but that was not the system. No, no, no. One huge, a part of that system was, has always been left out. It was not uh, exit at the 10 day low. It was anticipate the stops at the 10 day low. So if the chart pattern uh, stood out the 10 day low and it, and you thought there could be stops below that 10 day low, anticipate that get out before because and so the whole system was built upon this idea of what are other people doing? Where are their stops? Where are your stops? Uh, don't let people find your stops. And so that's kind of been lost over the years, but it's never been more important. They're out there gunning for our trades, uh, I mean, they're smart people. What else are they going to do? How do they set it off? Uh, uh, Renaissance is making 50, you know, 50% a year with 50% incentive fee, but they're not targeting tr CTAs. Come on. <laughs> really? That's your attitude? And now well, all the risk manager. 
Right, and now all the turtle books have to be rewritten because that was a nice uh, little uh, scoop that we got there from Jerry. <laughs> Any closing thoughts, themes that we want to bring up um, before we slowly start to bring this uh, conversation to to a close? Any key takeaways you want to bring up, Salem, that you you know have come across you find? particularly interesting at the moment well yeah as a as a kind of put a bow on it it's interesting we've we've talked about um it reminds me that that sun tzu art of war know thyself and know thy enemy and you shall have a thousand victories (laughs) and i think that's the challenge is we have to know ourselves and how our human tendencies lead us in the wrong direction and I think that's important. And then know what other people, you know, like what Jerry was saying, If are there people out there gaming us and how do we, you know, there's the opportunities we have in the marketplace, but there's also, there's pitfalls. And I think we need to know all those because the enemies are various and wide and numbered. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I think of that. I would, yeah, I would say first step is to admit that you might have some. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we surely have them. I'm pretty sure we have them. I mean, like, you know, we've, we've said that even a 200 day moving average system is probably a better system or, you know, preferable to just being buy and hold along only. Um, but you know, if, if I just reflect on myself, would I be trading a 200 day moving average system if I had other choices and options? No, I probably would not just because of the fact that I'm concerned that this system is so much in use out there and you know spotted so easily the levels are spotted by everyone by machines i don't want to be i don't want to be exposed to that exact point right different points in you know different shapes and forms maybe different ways around that same time frame but not exactly that point that's not where i want to go but maybe this is already also known fact that's right they already that (laughs) exactly right and then the third you know the third element of the you know the fourth element of that is never-ending story but i agree with that we have to you know the when you develop systems and do your research this is what you also have to um think about and and you know uh concern yourself with big brother is watching even our stops nowadays Yes. Uh, well, it's a real pleasure for me to be here with you all. It's always fun to visit with smart traders and smart guys like y'all. And it's it's especially fun to be here with Jerry because I f- think so highly of him and appreciate all, again, that he's done for me over the years. And, it's, and we've had a lot of fun conversations and interesting uh, conversations and I always enjoy that. So to add, to add more to you and, and Niels to the picture, it's fun. So thanks for yeah. having me on. It's great to be here. Be, be here today hang around a little bit longer salem we're just going to go through a couple of things that we normally round off with so we're going to run through the um, uh, performance as it uh, finished uh this is always as of thursday evening which wasn't quite the month end uh, this time around but it's going to be close maybe friday was a slight positive day i would imagine um, but anyways the beta 50 index up 1.82 for the month of june up 0. 0.5 5.05 for the uh uh, year Sockgen CT index up 2.26 for the month, up 4.53 for the year. The Sockgen trend index probably closest to our hearts, uh, up 2.57 for the month, up 7.25 for the year. The short-term traders index um, made a good comeback this month, up 1.89, and now slightly positive for the year, up 0.05. 
and the bridge alternatives up 1.32%, up 5.18 for the year. And of course, as usual, you can send all your questions to us at info at toptradersonpluck.com. Any last thoughts, Jerry, Moritz, Salem, before we wrap up? No, it's been great fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Thanks for having me, guys. Yep. Salem, thank you so much for uh, spending your Sunday morning uh, with us. We really appreciate it, as I'm sure all our listeners do. Um, and uh, just one big favor to ask all of you listening, um, if you have two minutes, don't know what to use them for, then please do leave us a uh, five-star rating and review if you feel we deserve it. It makes a huge difference uh, to the uh, show on iTunes in terms of the podcast rankings. I saw there are some really nice co ones coming in this week, and they do help. From Salem, Jerry, Moritz, and me, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.